0: Hello, this is Medit Yell. I'm the host of Leaders in Focus podcast, a program by the Sawa Sawa Network a Media Company, where we bring you interesting and insightful stories from South Sudanese members in the diaspora, but also back home in South Sudan, as well as friends across the world who may have an interest or something to contribute to our socio-economic and political conversations uh, surrounding South Sudan. My um, guest today is someone who has been uh, in our podcast before, especially our first season back in 2020. Her name is Rebecca Deng. She is an international speaker, girls' education, a refugee advocate, and author of What They Met for Evil. Her latest project is Voices of the Men, a compilation of essays that she did with some of her friends. Welcome, Rebecca, to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Madid. Thank you. Good to see you again.
0: Likewise, it's a pleasure. Um, it's been uh, over a year since we had you on the podcast. Uh, a lot have taken place. We've rebranded from uh, Salasawa Network Podcast. We're now called the Leaders in Focus Podcast. But uh, the, uh, the theme is still the same. Uh, we're interested in bringing in guests and people who are uh, of South Sudanese descent, whether that is in the diaspora, in South Sudan, uh, but also you know, friends and associates uh, who have interest. In South Sudan or something of, of interest that um, our members uh, can learn from. Good to have you in the program again. Uh, it's really a pleasure. I'm always glad and looking forward to have a conversation with you. As I mentioned in my introduction, your latest project is Voices of the Men, and I understand it's a collaborative project with some of your associates, and I'm really looking forward to having a conversation around that. Uh, but if you don't mind, if you can just open our uh, conversation uh, with a little bit of introduction and background about, about the book, Voices of the Men, uh, what does the title mean and what is the core objective or message of the book?
1: Thank you, it's my honor to be here. So yes, my uh, I think last time we talked, I spoke about my work of uh, what they meant for evil, which was my autobiography and uh, September. Uh, the book came out, Voices of Lament. And Voices of Lament is a collaboration of 29 women of color. Um, some wrote essays, some wrote poetry, some kind of have a, a kind of like a poetry or like more like a, even a dancing kind of writing, you know, because we are all different people from different backgrounds and different skills of writing. So basically the core message of voices of lament is that um, has women of color who have experienced trauma you know a lot of injustice and also has a women of color of faith, uh, we thought that coming together and naming the issues that they are, but without uh, despair, kind of like there's a hope. So Voices of Lament is 29 women of color writing on issues of injustice uh, that break our heart in the world in a modern day and olden day. So some people uh, cover like modern issues. Some people cover uh, uh, like historical um, issues, like we had somebody that is a South Korean uh, background and talk about the, uh, the the situation there and injustice that our people faced before World War II so and then we have Native American women talking about their tribes and how they have experienced injustice and then you have people like me that talk about uh, my heritage uh, from the Nubian Kingdom or the land of Kush or South Sudan or Sudan and um, all the injustice that occur there from war to being displaced to coming here to United States. So yeah, Voices of Lament is uh, what, have, what do we lament in life? What have we lost? And how do we gain that back? Or what is the path forward? Um, so it was, in flow, um, I think it was uh, my um, editor, Natasha, had the dream of bringing women of color together. And he was uh, looking at uh, Jeremiah, the Bible, and Jeremiah was talking about um, the injustice our pe- his people were facing. And then he said that bring the uh, women to will over us, bring the most skillful women. And more. I think what he was referenced there was uh, professional mourners, those who can move people and tell people like the way you're doing things is wrong. So that's pretty much the message of Voices of Lament. The Voices of Lament is targeting the American churches and American population, and also the international world on things that are a thing of injustice like racial stuff, you know, uh, child marriages, Um, displacement, so all of those injustice. So that's pretty much the uh, message of Voices of Lament is gathering people to lament over these issues.
0: Thank you for that background. It's really helpful in letting our audience know what the title of the book and the core message is. As you mentioned, uh, I didn't get a chance to read the whole uh, book, but I read your part and I also read the introduction and I could tell that, and and correct me if, if I'm wrong, uh, yourself and and your co-authors, you guys are women of, of belief and faith, and there was also an element of, of, of racial justice and equality. And um, there was a mention there about uh, the murder of, of, of late George Floyd uh, back in 2020, and um, how that triggered a movement, right? Uh, or revived a movement of racial uh, injustice in, in America against people of color, and mainly Black people. As the women of what do you think is the role of the church uh, in resolving racial justice in America? And I know that could be, uh, that is a a wider uh, question, but if you could just speak in terms of the church itself and people of faith and what role uh, can they play uh, in resolving racial justice in America? And the reason why I'm asking that is when George Floyd passed away back in 2020, what most people could hear about was the reaction of, of corporate America, but also popular culture, right? As someone who's who followed basketball, uh, there were a lot of uh, Black Lives uh, Matter, right? Themes of writings on the sides of the court uh, or in their advertisements and programs. Uh, there was also uh, a lot of conversation around the boardrooms in corporate America about what could be done uh, to support Black people and, and resolve racial injustice uh, in America. And part of that was you know, economic contribution, whether that is uh, given equal access or hiring uh, people of color. Uh, into important decision-making rooms in in corporate America or providing jobs or providing scholarship opportunities. Uh, But we didn't see much uh, about the church and what role it's playing. Uh, And so if you could speak more what the role of the church is in resolving racial justice uh, in America looks like and and, and what examples could you provide on that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, and I think that's the exact... same thing that we wrote the book, Voices of Lament. We have seen that the church is really silent when it comes to um, systematic uh, racism. And the church somehow have contributed to it. Uh, not all churches, not all walk of faith, but church did play a role in, in not calling what it is. <clears throat> I think sometimes you can mislead people by saying that these are things of the world and we have a new Jerusalem to go to. And so if things are like people are suffering on earth, there's also a hope. Um, but I think in the Bible to make it super clear, even those who read the Bible, when you read, when you, uh, read the Revelation, which is the last, last book, it talk about new, new Jerusalem and old Jerusalem but it doesn't talk about it like coming from heaven. It talk about like this is a city, a beautiful city where all different tribes and people and nation come together and the gate is forever open. To me, that show like a freedom of in and out, freedom of ideas, freedom of movement, freedom of people really living dwelling, but also respecting the differences. The church, however, sometimes have one message, and that message can be condemning sometimes or could be entitlement sometimes, saying that if people are experiencing this, then it's because they are not right with God, but that was never a message of God. So, our intention by addressing the issues of injustice as women of faith is to say that the American church, particularly, because this is where all of our authors come from, and also the international church in general is not listening, is not taking these uh, issues up, is not speaking up, is being neutral. Sometimes, sometimes um, you find few people, pastors or judges here and there saying this is wrong, but most of the time the church have remained silent on daring issues, especially issues of injustice. Uh, because um, they are hard topic to talk about, which again, that was the call of the church when Christ came to this world, um, asked those big questions, but the church itself is failing. So the whole book was written to say that these issues matter. And if the mainstream people like the sport people or pop culture is talking about it, where is the church in this conversation? The church should be leading. Um, Yeah, so yeah, the church is pretty silent. We have seen that as people of faith, it's easy to talk about dreaming about where to go when this world disappeared, but we all know that it's not disappearing anytime soon. And and we have yes. a command to uh, to 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 make things just um, like they say in Lord pray as your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a command that we do the will down here, and that will is to make sure that all of human humanity and creation is restored and is taken care of, and the church is missing on that, or if they are working on this, it's not enough.
0: To your point, the world is here to stay, and I hope that's the case because I can't imagine a life or a world where Mother Earth is no longer uh, here, at least for future generations that should also come here and experience uh, the beauty of being and and living in this uh, part of the world or or the ecosystem that we call uh, Mother Earth. Uh, Rebecca, gender equity uh, and equality was the theme in the book as well that leads from the introduction. and we should make a difference between uh, equity and equality. And what I mean by that, uh, sometimes when we say gender equality, it doesn't necessarily mean equity, right? Uh, if I can just give a simple example that illustrates the difference between the two words, equity and equality. Uh, for me, equality looks like, for example, if, if we're working on a project and we wanna buy, uh, you and I wanna buy two t- t-shirts uh, to send out the message about a project that we're working on, And obviously, our buddies are different, we require different size. Uh, But I go ahead and go order two small size t-shirts. And that's based on my uh, size. And I give you one. But your t-shirt size is not small. It might be large or medium. For me, that's equality. I gave you what I have, but it doesn't necessarily fit or is custom to your needs, which is you need a size that is different than small. And for me, equity would look like going out of my way and getting two shirts, one for the size that fit me, let's say small, and one for the size that fits you, let's say it's medium or large. For me, that's what equity looks like. And so when we say uh, gender equality, I think it's fair to say gender equity because it's, it's, it's providing solutions and ideas that are custom to each other's you know, needs and aspirations. And so I, I could tell that was the theme in the book. If you could share from your experience, but also from the experience of your uh, co-authors, uh, in what way is there a lack of a presence of uh, gender equity? And to you, what does that look like? And also from the perspective of your uh, co-authors in the book.
1: Yeah, thank you, Madit. And you have you have really, um, you. I like your analogy and illustration between um, gender, Equality and gender equity um, is totally different. Like you just said, equality is making sure that um, you say I'm gonna go to school. and you and I say we're going to school and then like, okay, uh, you guys can enroll tomorrow at school. Um, we can be in the same class or different class, but nobody have checked our proficiency like where we should be placed. But just because you are at a school, I'm at a school, we should be equal. We have faith, but it's different. Um, Equity, on the other hand, is customizing it, as you say. So here in the United States, um, everybody have a freedom to go to school. That is a rule. Nobody can tell you not to go to school. But not everybody have a safe or um, fully fund, a school or a school that is running well in the zip code so you can say that yeah there's a, you, you know you can go to school but then it depends on what neighborhood you are in what kind of school exists there what kind of resources they have what kind of transportation they have to get there just because things thing we're given equally doesn't mean that it's going to have the same impact and when you look at the thing of common good and also the equity is to make sure that there's a customized, like you say, uh, way of delivering services. Um, if I say today I need to eat uh, banana, and you say, yeah, okay, what do you want? Oh, I want to eat banana too, so it's the same. Well, bananas can come. They could be the the organic one and the one that is not organic. And if we eat on this thing for a long time, I'm pretty sure the one that is eating more organic can have a different outcome. Um, So these are the issues we are fighting. And when we wrote the Voices of Lament, we are saying that there are these issues and the issues are that brown bodies are more likely to be discriminated and it's true, and the uh, racism, uh, discrimination from all span of life, from education to even access to safety water. We have seen the issue of Flint, Michigan, and who was in that area? Who are the people in that zip code? Mostly people of color. Um, So that's why it's important to talk about these things, that equality, distributing things equally doesn't mean that They will do a job or the end result is um, going to be what we want. Um, If we want to leave people out of poverty, not just designing all kinds of jobs, it's not the the solution, but customizing it. You can design jobs, somebody can work in the office and make 80 grand a year, and somebody can be a cleaner, and make like 20 grand a year, and they ran it the same. So to begin with, you just even defeat that of equality, there's no, um, but customizing thing, looking at the issues and also talking to the community because uh, I think equality is more like prescription, prescribing it. We give you teachers. And one is small, one is large, one is extra large, and they are given to people that are small or people that are like mismatched. Yeah, so thank you.
0: Yeah, no, and uh, thank you for uh, putting that in perspective. And I think uh, one of your co-authors, when I read her piece, when it comes to racial, but also uh, gender uh, justice and uh, equity, uh, I think her focus, or at least the demand that your co-author was uh, hinting at is, is committing to long-term solutions, right? Not just um, putting out a name there on a basketball court that says Black Lives Matter or, you know, uh, putting people of color on a, a company's advertisement. I mean, these, uh, according to my view, look like band-aid solutions, not necessarily long-term uh, solutions. So I think the key word here is committing to long-term solutions and I think uh, from yourself and your co-authors, Nicole to the church is to also play a role in commit to long-term uh, racial uh, justice and, uh, and gender equity. Uh, Rebecca, faith uh, from an individual but also from a collective uh, perspective uh, was highlighted in the book uh, when I was reading the introduction. From your perspective as a woman of faith, um, how has faith or the church shaped your life and outlook in life? Uh, ever since you committed to the church,
1: yeah, thank you. Um, so I became a person of faith at Kakuma Refugee Camp. Uh, I think I was about eleven years old when I, well, about between ten and eleven, um, and most of most of it, or most of me becoming a person of faith, it started with just going to the church and dancing with my friends. I didn't say that I'm gonna go and believe in Jesus and all of that because you know I didn't grow up reading the Bible, but uh, going there and dancing. So it was a kind of activities with my friend, we were there. And the more I hear about the teaching of the person of Christ, the more I like to just go there. So to me, it was kind of like a story time. And then when issues, because at that time, we were refugee, who just came from Sudan and in a refugee camp. And there were a lot of talk about one day we will go back to our homeland. And the Bible talk about the journey of the Israelites, you know, um, in the land of Egypt and how they were delivered. So there were a conversation at home that was happening that resonated with what the church was, was talking about. And as a little girl, I have always been curious as a little kid, um, just listening to your stories or like understanding why things are the way they are. I will try to just gather um, information. So for me, going to church begin has a way to be with my friend, also has a way to really understand this bigger issue, like why are we displaced? And uh, why are we in a different people land? And will we go back one day, just like the Israelites came to the promised land? So that's what attracted me to go to church. Once I was there, I was again attracted to the issues of justice because I have seen the suffering of my people in a refugee camp or people that were dying back home because they didn't have access to uh, food and uh, medicine um, or just like a normal basic human need, people were not having those things. So the Bible talked pretty much a lot about justice, like God is a God of justice and he does deliver. So that attracted me to the church. Uh, Another theme that attracted me to the church is the uh, grace. Like it's a God that forgives, it's a graceful God, and it's a God that redeems things. You know, when things go wrong, he can mend them and they can be whole again. So that attracted me to the church and the whole idea of love, like it's a loving God. I grew up in a loving family. My dad was in the military. He traveled back and forth. I didn't see him much growing up, but once he was home, there was that warm of being loved or being uh, adored and treasured. And same thing with my grandmother that raised me. Um, my mom died when I was really young. But the way my grandmother took care of me, I didn't even know I'm a orphan. So sometimes when people talk about being a orphan or thing like that, the way I was raised, it doesn't even show. Because my grandmother, there was no day that she ever mistreated me. or The love was just there. I was left to be a child until I was six when I left the village when my village was attacked. But from ages zero to six years old, I was a typical child. I play, I eat well, I was taken care of, I was being uh, told every day, I love you, and all of that. So those things, uh, love is big in my life. Uh, either that love, that agape love, which is natural love, or love between two people, or whatever kind of love it is, it is very big in me. And so when I hear that God is a God of love, it makes sense to me. So those things, I become a person of faith then because of those three messages. And then I learn other things like forgiveness, other thing about uh, there's a season for everything, a season of mourning and a season of suffering and a season of joy. Uh, so the Bible to me was not only um, teaching me or reaffirming thing i have learned growing up but was also asking my soul to be a better person so as i grew older in my faith i learned about thing of the scene which is like in 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 things, biblical thing is mistake that we make and those mistakes have consequences and how can you write your consequences? You know, which is like in a church, in a Bible world, it's like forgiveness and asking repentance. But in 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 uh, regular everyday language, is like acknowledging your wrong, say sorry, give contribute uh, distribution. If you have to pay for the wrong you have done, then make it right. You know, make it right either by your words or your money, or action. Um, so all of those things make sense to me and till today I'm a person of faith sometimes I get frustrated with the church but I have to remember in my mind a church is made up of people imperfect people like me myself but the word itself is clear the word talk about doing issues of justice loving your neighbor as yourself that's a command Uh, God say that love your neighbor as yourself it's a you know, as clear as that. So if, if if I go, if I send my kid to school, and I have a running water, and my kids are eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I should be making sure that my neighbor kid are having the same thing too as well. And if they are not having those things, it is a command to make sure that you you fight for it. So to has to become to the issues of advocacy, making sure that I live in this zip code that is better rich. The road are perfect, the school are perfect, but the next neighbor zip code is not good. So how do we make sure that we provide resources for that neighborhood or that zip code? Um, yeah, so uh, my faith influenced what I do today.
0: Thank you for sharing uh, your journey of faith, uh, Rebecca. Uh, actually, when I was reading through the introduction of the book, uh, I couldn't help but uh, notice how relevant uh, the Bible today, whether you are a Christian or a non-believer, I believe uh, the Bible is very relevant. Um, You know, there were mentions there, especially in some of the chapters in the book of Jeremiah and Psalm, um, a calling for uh, gender equity where, you know, women played a role uh, in that uh, Christian era, uh, but also a calling for justice where women should belong, whether that is in the Um, uh, in the circles of decision-making or uh, women playing a role in the households where that is uh, raising children and taking care of the community and taking care of their men and loving them. Um, It it was amazing for me to realize that those issues were there at that time. um, uh, And then they're also continuing to be in our modern era and that uh, the answers could sometimes be found uh, in faith and especially uh, the book of Bible. Uh, so thank you for sharing uh, your journey uh, of faith and how that has shaped your outlook in life. Uh, Rebecca, I really enjoyed uh, your essay on the Voices of Lament, uh, uh, titled Owning My Heritage as Queen, where you touched base on your journey uh, here in America, but also uh, you related it back to a growing in South Sudan and you, you touched base on the role of women on uh, ancient Kush, um, uh, also in, in the liberation movement um, in south sudan uh with leaders uh, such as agir gum and the role that they played and also uh your great fifth, uh, great mother uh, Adul Bure, uh, great grandmother i should say um speak more about your experience here in america right as a south sudanese a black woman uh the things you faced uh some of the challenges you faced here and um and how how did that Share your experience living here in America?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah. So my title is um, um, Owning My Heritage as Queen. And I uh, focus on the three women, uh, my great-great-grandmother, Dolubiu, and I uh, mentioned Agergun in there. Um, she was a commander and growing up, I hear her name from my dad. Uh, and then I mentioned um, the, the, the Candace or more, you know, those, the, uh, the Queen's Mothers, historical of Sudan background. Um, and then also just growing up as a Dinka girl in my immediate family. Um, I talk about that and what that meant uh, because I come from a matriarch background, actually. My, my great-grandmother, that's where my mom come from, they are named after the women. And my dad's side of family are named after the women too. So when I was born into that, I didn't even realize I was being brought up um, with my brothers equally. Um, and so that's why I struggle a lot in Kakuma refugee camp when there was so much division between women, uh, like girls and boys, because when I was raised, I chat with my brothers the same. If I'm asked to do something they are asked to do something too. There might be a division of labor, you know where I will be maybe watching dishes and they are taking care of other things. but we were asked equally. Um, I didn't see uh, a, 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 you know, a treatment between me and my boy's cousin or, or, or brothers. So coming to United States, I came when I was 15 in 2000, going to 16. And um, what I have learned when when, when I landed there is that narrative of African women are mistreated. And that they are not uh, equal to men. Um, And we see this in a lot of things. And most of the report that is coming out are a report of war, women are raped in war, women are post-married, women are uh, giving up, you know, um, into slavery and those things. And as I go to school and study and read all of these news, it was so different from my upbringing. And I'm like, I remember growing up in a village. I never even heard a voice of a woman crying. The one time we heard, the one time I, I heard people, uh, like women, crying twice. One was like a willing cry, and then somebody, they told have ah, somebody die. And I think that was the first time I even heard the word death, like people die. Where do they go? And then there was another time I hear women willing, and it was like some attack. But just a man beating a woman till I was six years old, or five and a half, going to six, I never heard of that. Now, in Kaokuma refugee I have witnessed those. And to me, uh, it made me look back into my historical, uh, where was I or my culture before? And I see this symptom of abuse or mistreating women as a symptom of war. Uh, you know, people are stressed. Somebody just want to take, um, I don't know what it is, but I know that in a Dinka culture, there's no, I have not seen it in a village where they allowed women to be mistreated. If anything, even when we were running in a war, men will take women and children ahead of time and hide them and they were in combat. Now in a Western culture, when you go to Western or like, um, yeah, Western culture or white culture, historically, women have been in combat, they fight as men. I never heard that in a Dinka culture where, like you will be the last people to be killed, the women and children. And that was a sign of protection. Now that history is turned upside down and it's like, oh, women are abused. And it's like, no, we we need to correct that. We need to say that this is wrong. Um, Yes, it's happening because I have seen some women. I even hear a story of a woman shot in Juba by her husband and before in our Dinka culture, that will or where I grew up, that will be so wrong. And I remember even my older cousin when they are about to get married, they will say, "Oh, that family is good, or that family is a women beater. You don't go there; they abuse women." So there was no in- endorsing of abusing women, and I knew that at the back of my head. But there were so many overwhelming stories of women are not equal with men in Africa men are above here and they do whatever. And then I I, 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 I will always reflect back, I'm like, I remember my uncles and my aunt, you know, they cook, my uncle bring, you know, hunted uh, food, but there was no, like, each person is just doing, there was a division of labor, but there was no uh, issue of I'm better than you, you know. so. When I came here to the U.S., there were a lot of that topic, like uh, feminism, but feminism is view in the lens of a Western culture. And again, like I told you, I come from this matriarch background, and I'm South Sudanese, I'm Dinka. But my family are named after women. And so why, if women were not Bali, why would a tribe or sub-tribe name themselves after women? Um, So we are here in the Western world, we are put now equally with men, okay? Um, There's equality, but again, it's not (laughs) equity.
0: equity. So you see
1: that. So that's the challenge that I face coming here to United States as a woman of color. Um, You are expected to like, oh, men and women are equal. But it's not true. If I apply for a job, You and I, as a male and a female, and uh, we have the same background, the same master degree. I assure you, you're going to get paid 20 times more than I do because you are a man. And why is that? You know, there's equality in these countries. So, again, being here in the United States is like taking it back and say that okay even these advanced countries that think that women and men are equal there, there's no there's a lot of there's a huge gap um there's a huge gap in a workforce in a huge gap in what we do um careers that we study um yeah you see it all across
0: yes indeed I mean they there's always different relationships between women and men um, in different cultures and in different regions. And um, as, as as you spoke to it uh, brilliantly, um, growing up in South Sudan, right, you you really experienced uh, abuse against women or the girl child in your community. And you actually answered a question that I've been wondering um, on for a long time. It's, it's the idea that because I came across. A lot of people from your from your area like jungle and, and Bor, who have uh, unisex names that from my region uh, in northern baranguazal would be names uh, exclusively for women or for men uh, but from your region from Bor Dinkabur and Dinka Jungle, there, there seems to be a sharing of names a lot of names are unisex and i was always wondering why that is the case and i think you just answering this the fact that um, in your community, uh, women and men are treated as equal, right? To the point where people would name uh, uh, their born child after you know the name of their great great grandmother, who played a pivotal you know leadership role in the community, I and mean, you're proud of that, and you want to carry that legacy. Uh, so it's actually good to know. I mean, it says a lot about uh, our community and background in terms of uh, the gender relationships between men and women. Uh, Uh, Rebecca, on your piece as well, uh, Owning My Heritage as queen, uh, you spoke about uh, the seemingly loss of culture, uh, cultural heritage uh, between South Sudanese and especially South Sudanese women uh, here in North America. Could you explore more about that? Why do you think there's a loss of cultural heritage? And if that's the case, uh, in what ways or what could be done uh, to maintain our culture here as South Sudanese in North America? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, that's grieve my heart. You know, uh, there's a lot of cultural loss and some of it are controllable, some are not. Uh, for example, when I arrived in 1992, ending of 92, 93, Akuma to camp, I was seven years old. So if I didn't have family members that installed in me my culture and my heritage, it will be difficult to maintain my identity um, just because I was in a refugee camp at a young age. And also there were, so for me, I'm even better. I was there at the a refugee camp and had some background. Some were even born in a refugee camp, so they never even have any contact of the region. They say they come from Warab or from Lake State or from Jonglei, or from you know boar or from you know um a wheel they don't they don't have that they hear it but they've never been there they never smell they never see the trees they never hear the voices there uh, because one of the things that I realized when I went back 2009, I was in the abus and Malakal and then I went to Dupadi, Dupayuel Dupadi is where my dad is from I never made it there and when I hear people speaking in the village, and the accent was even totally different. And they even recognize my Dinka and they say that is so hard to place you. You are not Baragazal, you are not Bor, you are not, you are not from Duk, you are not from Tree, you know, because and I realized that my Dinka when I was growing up in Kakuma Refugee Camp is influenced by all Dinka speakers, including people from Ngoc. you know. Um, so um, so with, with with that said, there are some lots of culture that are not controllable. That is not controllable. However, there are other parts of culture that are controllable but are influenced by um, what the mainstream society think is beauty. For example, I have highlighted in there the issue of skin lining product. Um, and how people see that as beauty. Um, Well, if you really, um, I don't blame those who have done that. I have actually tried when I was in high school and I will never share the picture that (laughs) that I had from that. I look like a Hispanic lady. I look yellow, okay? And this was just one month of trying it, you know? And, uh, I, you know, because I was like, yeah, I want to feed in and everybody's doing it. So why not me? And then when I think about it later and and actually being a reader, I read a lot. And I say that I'm being prescribed. I'm being told my dark black skin is not beautiful and fair is beautiful. And you see even some advertisement. There was a lotion, I think, back in Kenya. I never use it. But my older cousin used it. It's called fair and lovely, you know So you are when you are fair skin, you are lovely and when you are dark skin and it's not true, you know um, everybody is beautiful in their own skin. And that's why I choose the women I cover and I talk about historical figures like where King Solomon is talking of beautiful black women in the Bible. Moses' wife actually came from the land of Cush, and uh, there were a lot of issues about family members not liking Moses' wife. And later on, when you read and say the wife was just kind of thing because I'm from the land of Cush, so there was a racism there where people didn't like Moses' wife because she was a a dark-skinned woman. So when you look at these historical figures and King Solomon talking about these beautiful, smooth women, dark skin women, you know that being dark is beautiful as just being fair or olive skin or yellow skin or whatever skin color tone you have, you are beautiful the way you are. And, and so that's kind of like a cultural loss that breaks my heart uh, where we are being prescribed what people think is beautiful uh, for our, uh, how our skin color should look like, how our hair should look like. I go sometime between to like, you know, shaping my head ball, And then I go sometime to like wearing it short, just natural. And then sometimes I put extension. And so I just want a healthy uh, uh composition around this thing. Even those who use the skin lining, it's not that they are bad, but it's to say the consequences of uh, of uh, health issues, health risks. It's extremely expensive to begin with. And uh, it's number one. Number two, it's not good for your skin. You know, um you might end up one day um when you reach to like a late 40s or 50s having a skin cancer. So have like, it's not even regulated it have a lot of hazard uh, chemical in it that are not just so good for you. So exploring this, but also seeing it as a trend, you know, it's like me using, a you know, like extension. Somebody might want to use a little bit of that, but it's to say, even for me, what are the cause of extension? When come summertime, come like April or May, I normally shave my head super short, the entire summer, I wear it short, I'm saving money. And then when it's cold, because I'm in Michigan, I braid my hair because it helped me with not being warm. Uh, but because, you know, like I, 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 my genetic thing, I was born in Africa, my ancestors are from there. So my hair was short to deal with the, with, with the cold. And as I am placed in a modern world that is cold, I need something to keep me warm, you know? So those are the things that mourn my heart, like that kind of loss of culture. Another loss of culture from my own way of seeing is that beauty of dancing, like bringing different, like Akuma refugee came? I grew up there. There used to be a war refugee day and there will be different cultures of people from South Sudan and from Sudan and Rwanda, like dancing. So I miss that culture of expressing ourselves in a non-verbal way, beautifully and majestically moving, singing, dancing, wearing different colors and all of that. We don't see that here. Uh, You see it every now and then with like community gathering but it's not the way it used to be where you will just go and dance for hours. So how do we bring those back? It's being intentional maybe one day South Sudanese diaspora say, hey, we need a center. And that center will have a cultural activities once a year or twice a year. And we will have people to come and teach different dances. And actually we can raise, because communities raise money, we can raise money and pay those people. Because it's about time you pay people for the talents. That is the skill. But most of the time, what we think is better, like there's a tap dancing, right? You can go to tap dancing or or salsa dancing, Hispanic dancing, and you pay for it. But if I want to learn how to do aga dancing or nuer dancing, then I I don't pay for it. What, What does that even communicate? It's like, if you don't value what you have and pay for it, then that's how you lose culture but uh, young people might go if they see older people like me trying to learn and pay for it. They're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna learn and look good and then make modernize it a little bit so it's attractive to them and not too my talking but just really dancing and maybe put in some hip hop moves to it or like yoga, whatever move to it. And it can help us, we can preserve our culture like that. So it will be a little bit watered down here in the West But then maybe one day, if they go back to the uh, traditional or uh, original villages where their parents come from, they can see the the authentic one, the one that have been kept and not influenced. And then it will be not too foreign to them. They will will have a little bit of background.
0: There are challenges, right? We we live in a different uh, world. um, And the challenge is to... uh assimilate, right, you know, get accustomed to the culture here and adapt, but at the same time, you want to maintain your cultural heritage, right, and so there's a competition whether that comes to, in terms of time or in terms of resources, Uh, but, but I agree with you, right, we have to be intentional about, right, and make an effort to actually keep our culture, which is beautiful, and that's what will identify us here and help us, you know, thrive in America, because as people say, it is a melting pot, and the reason why it is a melting pot is everyone brings their own, you know, cultural heritage from wherever they come from across the world. And I, I believe that South Sudanese, Sudanese and reason immigrants are uh, coming to uh, North America and the United States in particular. Uh, I believe that's what will help us, you know, occupy space in this melting pot uh, called uh, United States of America. Uh, so I applaud you for being interested in having ideas of what that could look like in terms of maintaining our cultural heritage. Uh, Rebecca, uh, we're coming to the end of our episode. Uh, as I said earlier, it's always a pleasure uh, speaking with you, always bringing in insightful ideas and working on really interesting projects that I believe uh, a lot of our community members can learn from and perhaps reach out and collaborate. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, if we can just add it on a motivational note and ask you on a personal uh, level, working on these amazing projects, right? sharing your story, whether that is through books or speaking, uh, and engaging in goals, uh, child education, and refugee advocacy. What motivates you to do all these interesting projects and opportunities that you're involved in? Like, what motivates you to do all these interesting things?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, a broad question, but also it makes sense to me. I think why I do what I do, because, like background, again, I study international development and social work and was going to go looking into working with the UN and USAID. And then I did theology as a master's and organi- organizational leadership, not knowing that I would write. But, you know, I have been told by my professors or those who have read some of my writing that you have to write one day. Um, So I start writing and it makes sense to me. And um, I might one day start dancing and it will make sense to me if I choose to, or maybe try to sing and I don't know where it will take me. But I have, like I say in the beginning before, I'm always like a curious person. And uh, I get bored with doing one thing over and over. So I'm not, I'm a creative person. So doing one thing, like there are some people that are log- like logical or structure, like they will do something over and over again and focused for a long time. For me, I can do that only with writing and maybe listening to music, but the rest of the stuff I need to mix up. And even when I'm at home and working on something or, or writing, I would write for like 30 minutes, 20 minutes. And then I'll have to get out and like open the window, be outside for five minutes, looking at the birds or just whatever, you know, or like texting with a friend and then come back and work on it again. Um, so with that, it have given me, you um, a way of looking into life or profession that there's no fixed profession. Uh, Right now, I do a lot of work around health, you know. During COVID-19, I become a community connector, um, making sure that people are connected with the resources that are in the environment. Today, when I came from the library, I was just working on a project, actually mapping out by zip code, like what kind of resources are there, what kind of hospital what kind of grocery store, uh, what kind of transportation, and some by looking at zip code, you can tell what, what kind of housing, is it mostly apartment high rise or a single homes? Or, uh, and uh, you know, in some neighborhood, sometimes you will drive for 30 minutes and there's no liquor store. It's just a lot of parks and walking and houses. And then some neighborhood you go there, and every single step there's a, 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 a liquor store. So what does that communicate? That by itself is setting people up to fail. Because if you are walking in a neighborhood, every a single corner, you can grab a drink. What are the young people going to do? You are setting people up from that versus another neighborhood, you will drive 30 minutes, and maybe the only thing you will see there is DWU which is like a more organic food. And some neighborhood is a lot of chips and things like, so by, by even designing it that way, you are certainly setting up people from that zip code to have a kind of different lifestyle. Um, so yeah, I, I do what I do because I'm a curious person, eh? Second, I just think that uh, there's a beauty in having a diversified knowledge and his skills. Now I do believe in competence, you know, I, I really do believe in competence. I don't want uh, a writer like myself to come and treat me as a doctor. No, you have to have a competence of that, you know, as a doctor. And I will not take my writing and ask the doctor to prove, read it. Um, that's not his competent or her competent. Uh, I will ask a writer. So I do believe in competence, yet I believe in diversifying your knowledge and your experience. And, um, I, and I think really if humanity pay attention, it really boils down to like, do I feel accepted in my environment? Do I have basic needs? And we can go all around it with different ways, looking at it. In uh, medical term, looking at it in uh, statistic math term, looking at it in the social social behavior terms, looking at it in a language term. You know, because I believe that people are more likely to take in information when it's from their hard language. And even me, as a Dinka is speaking, I know I I know that I already have a deficiency because my first Language, I don't even know how to read or write it. I do know how to speak it, but I'm um, deficiency in a term that I don't know how to read and write it or having terminologies that are deep, you know. Um, so I believe in um, yeah, just customizing thing and customizing your knowledge. If I go to this thing, why am I doing it? Doing a lot of my own research and also speaking with people, talking with people. Um the language is huge whether uh, is that a language in term of numbers or term of words you know like for example you can you can try to describe something you just ask me to describe what what, what is in my book and i say 29 women that that that, that is a uh, that is a quantitative kind of description you know uh and then i'm like these women are talking about these Thing and they are women with different background or different competencies. That is, uh, you know, qualitative, like quality of it. what is a person bring? So there's different way of describing things. and with that you go to does is, is the way you are describing something to somebody, does it make sense to them? And for example, today I was just reading an article that talk about most people that go to see their doctor. 60 or 70 something percent, or even I think it was more than a half percent, walk out not even understanding what the doctor just communicated to them. Because of the terminology that the doctor uh, was describing, it just come in and out and go overhead, you know, because it's like above their competence or terminologies that they normally do. So what are you really giving to people? And again, we look into that, into services. When you say, hey, I am an aid worker. I'm providing SASU done uh, $2 mil, million or whatever to do development. Why, why is that? And is that money, is it going to go, is it, is it prescribed to the people? Or did you ask the people? How do you arrive to give that figure, and if so, who are the people to carry out the uh, the, the 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 money or implemented? It? Is it you or those people, or is it only few people that are in Juba, and maybe they are not in the village? And is it going to you know? So it's just like a lot of. I just yeah, I just look at information and I think, I think, think a lot, and then read, read more, and then talk to people, talk to people. So, yeah, that's where my. My my background of doing so many different things come from, I think it down to my curiosity about how things works. I don't believe I know anything, you know? I know a few things, but I don't know tons of things. So that call for always doing a lot of research and listening to people and seeing how people see it, because the way I see it is not, we all have biases um and because of my upbringing, uh, because of my gender, because of my education, I might always have biases so I ha- I have no idea about a lot of things so the only way to keep myself being knowledgeable is uh, being curious and reading a lot or doing different things. Thank you
0: No thank you for sharing that I know uh, that can be a uh, personal question sometimes. And uh, you know, I've heard a lot that uh, curiosity begets opportunity. So uh, it's a good mindset to have. Uh, and that will definitely lead you to working and pursuing a lot of exciting and interesting projects uh, that you, that can help you grow as a person and as a professional as well. Uh, Rebecca, this is coming to the end of this uh, great uh, episode. Uh, thank you for coming again. This is our second time having you in our podcast. It's always a pleasure to welcome you back and having you share your story, as well as any uh, latest projects that you're working on. Um, how can our audience and people uh, connect with you, and especially where can they find uh, the book, Voices of Lament?
1: Yeah, thank you. So you can find me on uh, Facebook, Rebecca Deng, or you can find me on Instagram, Rivka Deng, R-I-V for Victor, K-A, Deng, um, is my um, username on Instagram. Uh, voices of lament you can go to voices or if you go to any of my Facebook page uh, I have personal and public page or also my Instagram you can find some of the link that I have here there or just Google voices of lament um, it is on Amazon Burns and noble books a million and wherever book are sold so you can find it there and uh, what I would Um, art for the voices of lament it is a beautiful book and you will learn a lot of different stories from you know Native American women African American women Haitian American women South Sudanese women Korean American women um, you know all over Peruvian American women it is a beautiful work of uh, different issues of uh, injustice and issues of praising too at the same time. So it's not just an uh, old bad thing. There's a lot of joy in it too.
0: That's a great read indeed. I was able to uh, read the introduction, but also uh, your essay, uh, Owning My Heritage as Queen, which a beautiful, great read. Thank you again, Rebecca, for coming in. This was uh, uh, another great episode, uh, which you've been sharing your story, but also sharing your latest uh, book project, uh, which you're, you are a contributor to. Uh, voices of lament and your part uh, owning my heritage as queen uh thank you very much to our audience for tuning in um uh, please uh we will publish this episode in all of our audio podcast platforms wherever you find yours whether that is apple podcast android spotify or anchor fm uh, we also launched a youtube channel where we will post a video uh version of this podcast uh, please leave us a review, subscribe, like, and let us know uh, what do you like about our uh, programs and how we can improve. And maybe if there is a guest that you're thinking about, that would be, uh, make a, a, a good guest on the platform. Feel free to reach out. Uh, we'll be happy to have them on the podcast. Uh, again, thank you for tuning in. And for now, take care of yourself and somebody else if you can.